Hello, and welcome to the Human Instrumentality Podcast, your guided deep dive into the seminal animated series, Neon Genesis Evangelion. I'm Ian Corey. And I'm Joseph Schaefer. In this episode, we discuss episodes 23 and 24 of Neon Genesis Evangelion and what they tell us about Rei's origins, Shinji's sexuality, and the final stages of the plot. Buckle up, because there's very little left in the show to spoil. And frankly, there's so much to fucking discuss that this episode is going to be gigantic, so we won't have any time to talk about foreshadowing. The time is close at hand. Human Instrumentality Podcast Unit 12. Launch. Episode 23. Tears. It's late night, and Misato's apartment is totally trashed. She keeps re-listening to Kaji's voicemail instead of cleaning or taking care of Shinji, who waits outside of her bedroom like a sick cat. Shinji remarks that she's been shut in for days, and also that Asuka hasn't returned to the apartment either. Instead, Asuka's been staying at Hikari's house, playing video games nonstop and wallowing in her self-loathing. Around the same time, in Nerve HQ, Rutsuko talks to her grandmother on the phone. It turns out that her cat has died. The next morning, Zele are interrogating Gendo. They're absolutely furious that the Spear of Longinus has been lost. Gendo doesn't stick around to take his reprimand, though. An angel is approaching. In her car, Misato spots the 16th angel, Armisael, which appears as a giant double helix formed into a halo. Unit Zero launches to engage the angel, and even though Asuka is despondent, Gendo orders that she stand by. According to him, she can still function as a decoy. On the bridge, Ritsuko chastises Misato for being late, and the bridge crew informs her that the Magi can't analyze our Misael. It may transform at any instant. Right on cue, it breaks from its halo form and mutates into a single glowing strand and attacks Unit Zero, piercing its AT field easily. Like Bardriel before it, the 16th Angel begins infecting the Evangelion's organic parts. In response, Asuka launches, but she can't sink with Unit 2, and her Evangelion won't move. Meanwhile, Rey undergoes her angel interrogation. Armisael appears as another version of Rey, waiting in a sea of LCL, and asks if Rey wishes to join with her. Rey rejects the angel, but it's too late to say no. Their fusion has already begun. Ray turns the tables on Armisael and says the angel is suffering from loneliness, hence its desire to fuse with another entity. The angel disagrees and claims Ray is describing her own feelings. Ray wakes up from her interrogation, crying, while Unit Zero mutates. Desperate, Gendo orders Unit One to launch. Asuka remarks how unfair this is. Gendo wouldn't launch Shinji when she was under attack. Armisael attacks Unit 1, and though Shinji fares better, it still begins to fuse with his Evangelion. When Shinji stabs the angel, he hears Rei's voice, claiming he's hurting her. The tip of the angel then mutates to look like a version of Rei's upper body. Ugh. The real Rei wonders if the angel is expressing 
her own inner desire to quote unquote become one with Shinji. Rather than find out, she reverses Unit Zero's AT field, sucking the angel totally inside of her Evangelion's body. Misato orders Rei to eject, but instead, Rei chooses to sacrifice herself and engages Unit Zero's self-destruct. For an instant, the Evangelion looks like an angelic version of Rei and then explodes, totally obliterating Tokyo 3. Bumper. Ray 3. Later, Ritsuko attempts to salvage Unit Zero's totally exploded entry plug. Meanwhile, Zele comment that only one angel prophesied in the Dead Sea Scrolls remains at large, but the loss of Unit Zero is the last straw. They need to dismiss Gendo. Fucking took him long enough, didn't it? But they also need a replacement for him. Hard cut to Ritsuko at her desk, looking at an old photo of Gendo, her mother, and Yui. In her apartment, Misato tries to console Shinji, who is incapable of crying. When she tries to hold his hand, he rejects her. Gendo and Futsuki stand by Rei's empty LCL tube, the one inside Central Dogma. Futsuki tells Gendo that Rei was always the product of his sadness, but she represented hope for Gendo. The next day, Misato gets a call that instantly rouses her from her torpor. She rushes Shinji to the hospital, where Rei waits for them, apparently alive? Shinji tries to thank Rei for saving him, but she has no memory of doing so, probably because, quote, she is the third one, unquote. Later in her horrible trap apartment, the third Rei grabs Gendo's glasses and attempts to crush them, but instead begins crying. She says these are the first tears she's ever seen, and has no idea why she's crying. In his office, Gendo meets with Futsuki, who says Zele won't be happy that Rei is alive. Another thing they won't be happy about. However, Zele are too busy uh, interrogating a nude Ritsuko to think about that. Ritsuko says that she feels no shame, but Zele think maybe she should consider that Gendo sent her to be interrogated as Rei's replacement. In her bedroom, Masato analyzes the data from the microchip that Kaji slipped her. Zele aren't certain that they made the right choice in trusting Ritsuko, but who cares? Once the mass-produced Avas are complete, they can begin their final plan, which will be easier now that Tokyo 3 is gone and there are no civilians in their path. Ritsuko calls Shinji and has him join her in Terminal Dogma, where Masato already has her at gunpoint. Ritsuko leads them to a dingy lab that is an exact copy of Rei's horrible room. This is where Rei was born. Her trap den is a copy of it. But it's not what Misato wants to see. Ritsuko then shows them a graveyard of Ava skeletons, which is where Shinji's mother died, even if he doesn't remember it. Then she takes them to the dummy plug room and turns on the lights, showing them a circular tube filled with smiling clones of Ray. Ritsuko explains that this is where the dummy plugs are made. She explains that the Avas and dummy plugs are humans who do not have souls, 
They needed souls to be embedded in them from salvaged material. Only Ray was born with a soul. After that, the chamber of Guff was empty. The Ray clones have no souls. Ritsuko flips a switch and disintegrates the Ray clones. She confesses that she had an affair with Gendo, but couldn't compete with Ray, and then says that if Misato wants to kill her, go ahead, that's fine. Misato refuses, and Ritsuko collapses, crying, just as Ray did. Episode 24. The Last Cometh. A young Asuka runs toward the camera. She's just been selected as an Ava pilot and wants to tell her mother that, because of this, she won't be lonely any longer. But when the door to her mother's room opens, she finds her mother there hanging dead. The door closes, and we hear a slap. That was a memory. She's just slapped Shinji, who is attempting to explain to her that, obviously, Kaji is dead. This, too, is a memory. In real time, Asuka's laying in a tub in an abandoned building, having slit her wrists. But before she bleeds out, nerve suits break in to retrieve her. On the bridge, Misato and Hyuga comment on how convenient it is that Zele's men took so long to find Asuka, and that her replacement, the fifth children, is already due to arrive. Gendo, meanwhile, is interrogating Ritsuko. He wants to know why she destroyed the dummy system. She says that she just wanted to destroy Rei, because she no longer feels any joy in sexual intercourse with him. After all, he never really had much faith in her. Shinji, meanwhile, wanders around the crater left by Armisael's detonation, mentally adrift. He's totally alone without Rei, Asuka... Toji or Kensuke. Just then, he's conveniently joined by Kaworu Nagisa, a music-loving boy his own age, who identifies himself as the fifth children, and for some reason refers to human beings as Lilin. Hyuga and Misato confer in the car elevator. They have no info on Kaworu's background, only that he's been sent by Zele directly, and his birthday is the date of the second impact. At a sync test, Kaworu's score is incredible. It even beats Shinji's. After the test, Koru confronts Rei on the giant escalator. He says that she and he are similar, having assumed the bodies of the Lilin. The Magi, meanwhile, are using all their processing power to try and analyze Koru, but they can't draw any conclusions. Long after the sync test, and after he should have been home, Shinji sits alone in nerve, listening to music. There, Koru confronts him. Even though Shinji doesn't feel like returning home, Koru insists that having a home is a good thing, isn't it? Also, he'd like to keep talking with Shinji, and offers to follow him into the locker room shower to continue their discussion. <laughs> In the shower, Kaoru armchair philosophizes that humans can't ever really avoid loneliness in the long term. While he's talking, he holds Shinji's hand, the way Misato could not. Kaoru invites Shinji for a sleepover, and remarks that the hearts of human beings are delicate, Shinji's especially. Finally, he says that he loves Shinji. 
bumper, the beginning and the end, or knocking on heaven's door. Zele decide that it's finally time to make Gendo pay for betraying them. Gendo talks to Yui slash Unit 1. Hard to tell at this point. He says that their time is short, but the Spear of Longinus is gone, and it was the only thing that could hinder them. Once the last angel is gone, it's their time to shine. Also, he has the embryo of Adam embedded into his burned hand. Kaworu and Shinji are going to bed. Kaworu in his bed and Shinji on the floor. Kaworu says maybe he was born just to meet Shinji. The next day, Kaworu returns to the lake and he has a seemingly telepathic meeting with Zele. Zele say that human are the spawn of Lilith, the second angel, while the remaining angels are the spawn of Adam, whose soul exists inside of Kaworu. However, Adam's physical power resides with Gendo, and it is their wish that Kaoru will strike him down for them. Misato is watching Kaoru from the distance, at the same time through binoculars. And in classic horror movie villain fashion, Kaoru turns to look back at her. Later, Hyuga shares with Misato some secret info. Kaoru can change his sync rate at will. Disturbed, Misato visits Ritsuko in her cell and asks her who Kaoru really is. Ritsuko says he is the final messenger. On cue, Kaoru visits Unit 2 and activates it without even entering. Instead, he hovers alongside it. He is Tabris, the 17th and final angel. While Misato scrambles, he travels with Unit 2 to Central Dogma. Nerve closes the blast doors, but Unit 2 breaks through them. Fyutsuki says he never thought Zele would stoop so low as to send an angel into Nerve of their own volition. Gendo says they're skipping ahead and orders Unit 1 to launch. Zele confirm his suspicion. If they can't count on Gendo to start instrumentality, they'll force Unit 1 to do it by any means necessary. Shinji is furious that Kaoru is an angel. Unit 1 and 2 have a progressive knife fight, and Kaoru deploys his AT field to prevent the knives from colliding with him. He then explains that humans have AT fields as well. An AT field is the inner wall that humans put up to defend themselves from pain. While the Avas fight, Masato and Hyuga agree that if they lose Unit 1, they will activate Nerve HQ's self-destruct instead of allowing third impact to begin. However, Kaoru deploys an AT field so strong that it cuts off all communication between the bridge and Terminal Dogma. The Avas land inside the core of Terminal Dogma, the Black Moon from which mankind emerged, and Kaoru opens Heaven's Door, the innermost vault, where Rey and the crucified angel from earlier in the series are waiting for him. Even as he does so, Kaoru wonders if reuniting with his maternal entity and destroying humanity is necessary. Before he can decide, though, he stops. The crucified angel is not Adam. Shinji defeats Unit 2 and grabs Kaoru in Unit 1's fist. He demands that Kaoru answer for his actions, but Kaoru surrenders and asks to be killed. He's come to the conclusion 
that to die is the only real choice he can make in his mostly predetermined life. And he's come to the conclusion that Shinji does not deserve to die. Kaoru insists that he's happy that he could meet Shinji. And then, after a prolonged pause, Unit 1 pops his head off like a Pez dispenser. Later, by the crater, Shinji confides in Misato. Kaoru was the first person to say that he loved him. He thinks Kaoru is a kind person and that Kaoru didn't deserve to die. Misato disagrees. Kaoru sacrificed the will to live. You thought it was bad before. Here's how bad it gets. You're going to cut your fucking boyfriend's head off. That's how it ends. Oh, man. Um, There's a lot. There's a lot. There's a lot. There's a lot. I know we've been saying there's a lot for episodes, but holy shit. Literally like probably a third of the lore of the show, not to mention one of its undisputed most important characters is just in this two episode block. So instead of being freeform, this time Ian and I had to like put flags into what we're going to discuss so we don't miss anything. This episode's going to be long. It's going to be long, just like you've probably, by the time you have loaded this up, you already know this is going to take a minute. If you've watched the show with us, as you should be doing while listening to this podcast, you know why we have to go long here. And if you've watched past where this podcast is, you probably especially know why we got to go long here. Uh, these episodes are in in many ways the last conventional episodes of Evangelion. And what what do you mean? What do you mean? You're you're that's not that's not true at all, right? It's because the next two episodes are we're gonna get the big Evangelion fight against the mass produced Evangelions. They've been talking about for eight episodes. We're gonna see what happens with Spearlaunch. We're finally gonna get um well we're gonna feel catharsis, right? And closure. And they're going to explain what the mysticism means, right? Like it's all gonna make sense, right? And maybe we'll slip in some fan service too. Sure. What believe what they tell you at your own risk. <laughs> <laughs> Surprise, that's the end of the episode. Uh, but before we get into a lot of the, the juicy stuff, because real life has intervened and made these episodes actually more difficult to talk about. And I don't mean what's happening in the world, but rather that the production and reproduction of these particular two episodes, episode 24 specifically, the way that Netflix has represented these episodes and the show in general has made there's a lot of uh, of elephants in the room. There's a whole herd of elephants in the room that we, we're going to need to talk about. But we made a crucial error in the last episode, which is that we did not talk about the introduction of n- some new music, or really some very, very old music, into the Evangelion canon. And given that Kaoru introduces himself into the series humming none other than Beethoven's Ninth and declaring his love for human music, we have to take some time to talk about Evangelion's use of classical music in these last few episodes. Uh, Joseph, are you a fan of classical music? <laughs> Am I a fan of class? Okay. I enjoy classical music. I, I do enjoy Beethoven more than many classical composers like so for example i i don't get a lot of enjoyment out of bach uh for whatever reason even though bach is like riffy and we're both metalheads but like 
Bach doesn't scratch my itch for some reason. I'm, I go up and down on Mozart. Like, I think the magic flute is fucking dope. And um, there's some other of his operas that I've not listened to more than once. My, my dude's Tchaikovsky, but Beethoven rocks. So let's let's talk about Beethoven. Well, yes. So there are two there are two pieces used. This relevant to this episode is Beethoven's ninth. And as it so happens, it's the uh, 250th anniversary of Beethoven's birth this year. So uh, interesting really? synchronicity. Yeah. Huh, um, OK. But we should at least take a, a brief digression because we need to talk just briefly about Handel's Messiah which was used in the previous pair of episodes during Asuka's angel interrogation. There's that incredible moment where the light shines down from the heavens, hits Asuka, and we're treated with the, the classic hallelujah. You know, uh, It's one of the most overused and familiar pieces of classical music that I think any, anyone knows that. You know, no one, very few people probably know that it's Handel unless they're uh, into music or into classical music specifically. But you, you know, you do hallelujah. Everyone immediately knows that's what it is. So uh, some people who work at Studio Gynax later started another animation studio called Trigger that did a series called Kill La Kill, which is good. It's not Evangelion good, but it's interesting. I, I mixed feelings about recommending it to people but it does a really good job of like representing queer characters in Japanese animation a theme we're going to come back to in this episode but there's a recurring joke in that show that is the Handel's Messiah cue with the light coming coming from above that's pretty uh, funny <laughs> I feel like it's the animators like reflecting back on the use of Messiah and Evangelion being like wasn't that ham-fisted. Now let's make a gag out of it. <laughs> it is It is definitely ham-fisted. Um, it is a classic case of musical irony. You know, it's, it's, I think this is a trope that pretty much everyone can identify, you know, like the idea of bringing in this sort of stately, uh, religious classical music and throwing it into sharp relief against visually horrifying images. You know, this sort of violence meets classical music trope. It's, done to death it is such a cliche what i think makes this particular use of handel's messiah at least slightly more interesting is the fact that the show has backed it up with all of this other textual references to christianity so handel's messiah right. um it should be noted just some interesting little back background information handel was living in england at the time that he wrote it he's german originally and was trying to like make a go of it in England was not doing great. He was kind of like running low on funds and was thinking of moving back to Germany. This was sort of his last ditch effort to get his career off the ground while in England. So he was given this like Christian text to work off of this, like, you know, basically someone compiled all of the parts of the Bible that are specifically about the coming of the Messiah and turned it into a poem that Handel could set to music. And it was, a, a, you know, as you can tell, it's a canonized piece of work, but essentially it's a piece of Christian propaganda. That's what Handel's Messiah is. It is, you know, deism was very in vogue at the time of its writing, and this was sort of the response. It was a, a reactionary piece of music written to, you know, promote Christianity at a time where there was a, a public threat to it. And so there's all of this 
embedded meaning in that that I really like of Asuka suddenly being assaulted by this ray of light and it being scored to what is in one perspective, you know, beautiful music that everyone sings in their high school choir for Christmas. But from another perspective is this forceful promotion of Christianity. It is the forcing of Christianity down people's throats. And so much of the show is, you know, Shinji battling with his father figure, battling with God figures. And so I just like that that the irony is not just like, oh, it's funny because it's a happy piece of music and a dark image. It like actually does kind of kind of work in a in a cool way. I will say, though, that that usage is trumped by how well they use Beethoven's Ninth in this episode. Totally. So there's a whole like little like piece of the plot that we didn't like exactly go over in the in the the summary that I here's my refrain. I forgot this happened. Uh, but like when Kaoru's introduced, he's humming Beethoven's Ninth, and then later Shinji listens to Beethoven's Ninth in his little earbuds, and then they score the final fight scene to Beethoven's. Ninth. Specifically, it is the final movement of Beethoven's Ninth, and it should be noted that Beethoven, the Ninth Symphony was his final symphony. Beethoven famously went deaf later in his career, so he composed the Ninth Symphony basically at the point where he could no longer hear. That's like God level <laughs> composition sort of stuff, where you know you get to the point where you can compose this incredibly beautiful symphony without being able to hear a single note of what you're writing. Beethoven was just that good at music you know sucks for the rest of us but it is it's so the the final movement is the only time that a choral piece is ever was ever used in one of beethoven's symphonies and it is the adaptation of a poem uh, that i believe was originally written in french but then translated into german schiller i believe is the poet and it is this it is the ode to joy it is the Uh, Ode to Brotherhood and the Connection of Human Beings to Each Other. It is about all of humanity joining arm in arm and delighting in the power of life and unity in all of God's love, etc., etc. And it is a piece of music that is is incredibly popular, not just because it has all this historical weight being attached to the canonical greatest composer of all time. It's his final work, all that sort of stuff. But it's also because of its themes of, you know, it's basically humanist religious themes. You know, Zizek, Slavo Zizek, the philosopher, has this great video. Uh, I believe it's part of his uh, Pervert's Guide to Cinema, where he... its I'm sorry, it's part of the Pervert's Guide to Ideology, which is the sequel to the Pervert's Guide to Cinema. And if you're listening, Slavoj, just do the Pervert's Guide to Anime. <laughs> you, know you, you know your fans want it, man. Slavo Zizek has to be, like, top 10 philosophers that have, like hard on weeb fandom you know like just give the people what they want zizek yes we will talk about the tentacles and the orifices (laughs) in its relationship to marx (laughs) but you know he points out that this is a piece of music that has been used in all sorts of different political situations all sorts of political contexts whether it be the nazis whether it be uh, Chilean leftists, whether it be the European Union, everyone sort of views Beethoven's Ninth as their own. And so does Ava. And I think Ava has good reason to do it. Like those themes of human interconnectedness, human brotherhood, human humans joining together 
to exalt the glory of God. This is a, a show entirely about how humans cannot do that. <laughs> they literally right. are always at arms. And this song is played over the ultimate betrayal, the betrayal of Shinji by Kaoru. His final, the final heartbreak, the most, the final twist of the knife, as if it couldn't get any worse for him. This happens. And it's set to the most just brutally ironic use of a, of a beautiful piece of music about the very thing that he is no longer able to do, which is connect to another human being. It's also like what's, Kaoru is an interesting character in some ways because he does in the same way that Ritsuko did early in the series, begin functioning as a philosophical mouthpiece in some ways, literally, because like in the first scene, he he does say that quote about how like, oh, music is, is like the ultimate human achievement. Don't you think that's almost a verbatim Nietzsche quote and Nietzsche is quoted other places in in the series. Right. But Karu isn't a Nietzschean. It doesn't seem because Nietzsche would want. Kaoru to attempt to integrate with Adam or Lilith or whatever and, and bring about instrumentality because it's you would say yes to your given path in life and Kaoru doesn't which is interesting like it's interesting that that he, he betrays Shinji and then sort of like betrays his his own cause by like submitting to be killed it, it it's a very we get so little time with him that it's hard to really understand exactly why Kaoru makes that decision like we don't really know who he is we basically only see him through the lens of Shinji and it's this is where we need to talk about the various changes in translation that have happened because our experiences Joseph and I's experiences of the of this episode are very different than the ones that are presented to the Netflix first crowd. Like if you've never watched the show before, this translation is noticeably and functionally different than the one that came before. So yeah, Joseph, I, I would love to hear your take on this. How do we want to bring this up? Let's, let's back this up for a second. So early in, early in this podcast, I was talking about how Evangelion, one of the things that it does is play with and upend established genre tropes in animation and science fiction. That's one of its goals. That's one of the things that it, it does. And one of the ways that it subverts the often very heterosexual machismo and veiled nationalism of the giant robot genre is incorporating another common Japanese animation genre called, if I'm pronouncing this correctly, yaoi. And yaoi tends to deal with romantic love between young men. Although often through a thick veil of innuendo and words that can have be taken in, in multiple ways. Because Japan, like America has a deep conservative cultural streak. It's probably one of the reasons why Japanese media translates so well to American audiences, I think. And interestingly, yoi is like is like a genre that's primarily written and drawn for a female audience. And so it's it's in a way very interesting and submersive that late in the series, 
they introduce uh, a character that's super important to the plot and introduce all these homoerotic themes in order in part to play with genre in addition to make the deepen the plot and to and to add depth to Shinji's character. Kairu's like a super popular character and to a lot of people especially like I think teenagers who may be having when they were watching the series first maybe were beginning to question their own sexuality or discover aspects of their sexuality that existed but weren't mainstream and weren't being represented to them in media myself among counting myself among that number because of that the Kaoru Shinji episode as it was presented by ADV with I love you explicitly in the subtitles and the dialogue was really powerful and so like when Netflix released Evangelion and they decided not to translate Kaoru's line as I love you it caused a firestorm of discourse that probably overshadowed everything else about the show when it dropped I mean Vox did a whole article about it I remember Twitter that day Twitter that day was a cesspit uh even more so than Twitter usually is Stop me when I'm wrong. Am I am I am I wrong so far yet? Ian? Uh, no, what, you're what entirely you, right. I can't speak to the the Twitter discourse. I I got to it. I heard of all of this sort of secondhand once you know the explainers started dropping, and it's it it was it's very disappointing that Netflix chose to water down the romantic interpretation of these two characters' relationship. They sort of dumb it down to instead of Kaoru saying. I love you, he says, you have a place in my heart. And it's this sort of like vague statement that allows it to be interpreted in a in a way that is maybe more explicitly connected to like the, the it's just, I don't know, it feels just like, it's almost like an overly academic way of talking about the show. You know, it's like all of these characters have a place in each other's hearts in one way or another. And to put it in such cold terms is just it's it's mind-boggling to me because it doesn't it's counteracted by the very filmmaking of the show you know like one of my favorite details is when we first see Kaoru the the camera basically stays on him while he and Shinji are having this conversation and the first time it cuts back to Shinji's face he's blushing and he's he like it is immediately clear that this is not a normal person to person conversation this is not a it's not purely platonic the the filmmaking wants us to see it that way and let me let me muddy the water a little more sure because there's okay so i i did my own little deep dive into this scenario today and there's an interesting reason as to why an interesting series of events that sort of led to this choice happening and I hate to do this, but I think I've got to take a little bit of the blame off of Netflix. So when, when Evangelion was originally translated into English, Anno and Gainax had very little say in what ADV did, They, um, which is weird because Anno's a control freak. That's part of the reason what we're going to talk more about Anno being control freak next week. It has serious implications for the show. He doesn't have exact control, and he said numerous times in public that the idea that the show can have multiple interpretations is something he likes about it. It's intentional on, on his part. 
So when they when when Netflix renewed the show, Anno's new company, which isn't Gynax, had way more say in the translation. And you can find on Twitter the man who translated that line into English. And it was intentional to make it less romantic. And the the reason that this person gave was they wanted to underscore the ambiguity inherent in the show. I think that maybe this person needs to examine if they have some unspoken homophobic feelings. But I've never met him, so who knows? Or maybe that's something that's sort of like in, endemic in in the industry now. I, I, I don't know. I get there are things about this show that are ambiguous, but most of them are plot related. Right. And I would say that the show is actually very unambiguous about the internal emotional lives of its characters, especially at this point in the show. We've already had multiple scenes. In fact, in these very two that we're discussing, we promise we'll get to the Ray stuff. Like, just bear with us, please. These characters are now put in positions where they have to openly explain their feelings about each other and about themselves in such stark and unambiguous ways that to waffle about one character expressing love for another and say, no, we need to like make that more ambiguous. Like, should we then also make Oscar saying that she hates everyone more ambiguous? Like, I don't, I don't get it. Like, it just seems like a really weird kind of arbitrary thing to decide like this needs to be more ambiguous versus all of the other things about characters expressing their feelings toward each other. That should remain just as obvious, you know, like why the, here I am dumping the water out of the tub. I find myself unpleasant. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's like, this is, this is a weird time. Like suddenly you care about ambiguity and how these characters feel about each other. Like why now? You know, I don't know. But again, I don't know the guy either. So I can't really, I can't speak to the contents of his heart. (laughs) What a fucking Ava thing to say. (laughs) Admittedly, as I said earlier, ambiguity is part and parcel, part of the Yoi genre that this episode explicitly plays with. And Kaoru saying cryptic things scans. Kaoru's Mr. Hare, I'm going to very bluntly say very strange things to you. But, okay, so I, I, I went even deeper. And so, full disclosure, I only took one year of Japanese in college, and I've forgotten fucking all of it, except, weirdly enough, how to try and buy weed, which is very hard to do in Japan. But many people who are more fluent in Japanese than I am have tried to break this particular translation scene down. And fortunately for me, I happen to be a band within a band with someone who's a professor of Japanese. So I got to take a pretty good look at, at this line that Kaoru uses. The word that he uses to describe the way he feels about Shinji is koi, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, which I'm probably not, which doesn't have a direct translation in English. It's more than liking, less than explicit romantic love. However, the word for explicit romantic love, aishiteru, is almost never used in Japanese, especially not by men. And so my understanding is, given the context of the scene, 
there there is no good faith interpretation of the word that Kaoru says not meaning a romantic if not sexual attraction it would mean like the better translation would be like i like you dude like you like let's go to a cabin in the woods for two weeks just you and me forever maybe how about that <laughs> i like you like i want to move in tonight as a matter of fact what are you doing later uh come over to my place which come on he just held the dude's hand and he's he's in a shower he's in, invited himself to take a, a bath with this person and then says this there's no there isn't a good faith non-ambiguous translation into english and i come down on the side of the translation uh, is an attempt to erase kaoru's queerness and shinji's queerness so all of this is to say that we are going to discuss the episode and these two characters through the lens of this being an explicitly romantic relationship. And that I think is the, in my opinion, it's, it's a richer way of looking at the show. It retroactively makes a lot of the show much more interesting to think about as well. And it improves the, it raises the stakes of these final episodes in such a clear way. We've talked a lot about the psychosexual elements of Ava and how Shinji is kind of constantly being batted across two fronts. Like he's dealing with all these issues about living up to the expectations that his father has for him or trying to please his father and fighting all these dick-shaped alien monsters while also surrounded by these women that he feels like he should be attracted to and maybe is somewhat attracted to, but is also sort of put off or ill at ease with his attraction to those, those women. Like think about all of the like awkward fumbling between him and Oscar. How much better does it make the show that in this final moment, he finally does have this sincere and reciprocal interest with another person. And then at the very last moment, that's taken away from him. It is the, one of the crueler parts of the show, but this show is in its later half entirely about cruelty. So of course the show would work that way. Of course his actual true love interest would show up only to be an angel. You know, like that's just, to me, that makes the show better. To, to quote one of my favorite poems by one of my fa favorite poets, Stephen Crane, the secret to poetry is cruelty. I would like to talk about the way that the angels' tactics have changed in these final few episodes. Totally. Let's do it. Over the course of the series, because this is it, we now have all of the angels in front of us. We know what we're looking at here. The final batch of angels, especially these last three, but you can throw Liliel in there as well. Um, have been about confronting humanity, not physically, not physically overpowering humanity, but interrogating the human soul and the human mind. And right. this is how they get this close to achieving their goal of reaching terminal dogma and beginning third impact is not by overpowering humanity because humanity is very good at building walls around itself and building armor and fighting back and having technology at its side instead by examining the human heart and forcing the human heart to confront itself they start winning hand over fist they just make so much progress so much faster and 
now we have all the the main characters angel interrogations and basically these like targeted angel attacks to each one in front of us and i, I think it's instructive to look at how that works like oscar doesn't have any choice to enter the angel interrogation and nor is there really a face to it she's just her brain is whipped around in a blender for the entire course of the episode while someone roots around into her subconscious Ray's interrogation is a bit different. This is actually, I'd, I'd say, probably the most intuitive and emotionally available angel that has shown up so far. It just so happens yeah. that it comes across Ray, who's the least emotionally available person in the show. <laughs> it's kind of funny that their mutual interrogation is like, I think you're a lonesome SOB. Nah, you. And then the angel's like, nah, you. <laughs> Surprised Pikachu face. What? <laughs> I have feelings. Rather than confront my feelings, I suppose I'm going to self-destruct and maybe kill a whole city's worth of people? Yeah, it's incredible how the show just kind of sweeps that under the rug, isn't it? Like, oh yeah, Tokyo 3 doesn't exist anymore. Like, oh my god. <laughs> that happened quickly. They had to write the little line of dialogue. He's like, oh, right. And Kensuke's family and he his family, they all got away. As opposed to like the first draft of that script, your friends are fucking dead. Yeah. I, I almost wish the show actually just stuck with that. It was just like, nope, they're all they're going. They're gone. They're all dead. Um, it was after the sarin gas attack. They couldn't do that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's it's pretty much impossible at that point. But so uh, so be it. I would say that that angel is it. Like, it's weird because the final two angels feel like they actually understand humanity. Right. And. That's terrifying because now in these final episodes, we also learn that human beings in this show are the progeny of angels. So humankind are the children of one angel and the all the other angels are the progeny of another. And it's taken this long. It's taken until the final step to you know have this uh, Tabris, the angel that takes the human form of Kaoru finally is at the at, on the same level uh, as humanity and sees it for all of its faults and all of its weaknesses and is able to exploit those not out of malice for Shinji, but just because that's what it's there to do. It's just survival of the fittest. Uh, Kaoru does have this kind of strange eugenicist bent to him where he, he sort of is like, well, this is what I am meant to do. And if humanity is meant to die, then so be it. Like the only one form of life is meant to exist on this planet at this time. And it's going to be us until he realized that he's been duped by Zele. And then he allows Shinji the, to make that choice. Side note. I don't love Kaoru. I Like as I'm watching it, I think he's a little bit of a predator and like insinuates himself into Shinji's life very forcefully. And I kind of think his philosophy a little bit is bullshit. Yeah. Again, we don't spend a lot of time with him. Like we really do not know this character at all. And so we have to only view him through Shinji's eyes. And Shinji at this point is so desperate to have some kind of positive connection with another person. Like everyone else is either doesn't care about him. Like as we've mentioned in the plot recap, Masato is no longer paying attention to him. His dad never cared about him. Asuka is, you know, completely off the map. Ray isn't even Ray, the Ray that he knows anymore. There's no one left. What a moment. 
what a moment by by the way the like ray ray being alive it will we'll come back yes. to it. but let's 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 do some more kaoru and then we really should let's circle back to episode 23 because it is sort of one of these episodes that kind of gets lost yeah it it all happens so quickly that like and especially because it's surrounded by these two episodes that i think fans want to talk about more they want to talk about you know the hallelujah you know, brain blast that Oscar goes through and they want to talk about Kaoru because those are much more like exclamation point kind of episodes and Ray gets lost in the shuffle, which is a shame. But, you know, from Shinji's perspective, here is the one person that has a kind voice and cares about Shinji and expresses some affection for Shinji and listens to Shinji's problems. And you're right. There is something kind of predatory about that. There is something about Kaoru that is we should be unsettled by. And I think that's to the show's credit that the minute we're we're as an audience questioning, like, who is this guy? What are his motives? Like, what's he doing here? The show immediately catches that and flips it and is does it faster than we can even keep up with. Like, he's an angel before we can even really catch up with him being a character, you know? Right. And ultimately, the entire point is to fuck up Shinji's life even more. Like, Kaoru only exists in the scope of the show to ruin Shinji's life (laughs) and by the end of that episode when he's finally you know there's that amazing sequence with the you know the Beethoven's Ninth playing and the static shot again this is not budget cuts it's artistic choice to have this moment where we are not privy to Shinji's thoughts we don't get to see it from his perspective so we have to consider what he's going through ourselves and he makes the choice to kill Kaoru after that, he has no connection with anyone anymore. The entire social fabric of the show has been destroyed. It is the last straw. And that's what makes it such a powerful ending to this phase of the plot. Do you have anything to add or should we move on to uh, to the Ray segment? Um, I, I was just going to say that we'll, we'll, we'll probably come back to the women in his life, I think. Yeah. Because it, it is, is interesting in this point in the show the way that we'll get to it how quickly Misato begins to fail him and also how quickly every single one of the masterminds behind the plot reveal themselves to be absolute dingbats yeah it's funny everyone has outsmarted each other and simultaneously been outsmarted like no one knows what the fuck they're doing Joseph you're on record as not liking Ray very much so why don't you start us off <laughs> to talk about the Ray segment of all of this? They call the episode, like the second half of that episode, Ray 3. And now we understand why. Because she's like the third Ray incarnation that's been spat out of the gross tube. The first one having been like strangled by Ritsuko's mom. But... Really, you could call it's a Ritzko episode. Mm-hmm. She, she be, by the end of the series, she's more fully developed than Kaji is, and maybe than Misato becomes. I would disagree with that. I would say that the difference is that Misato we spend more time with incrementally, whereas Ritzko's character development is kind of really sparse in the early part of the show and the actual hammer blow of of her her true emotional state isn't landed until these episodes so it's kind of a sneak attack that we suddenly like understand Ritzko on a much deeper level kind of out of nowhere in these final moments right so 
it's interesting that like I like the I like the bit about like the new I like the scene of like the new Ray going to her shitty fucking apartment and grabbing Gendo's glasses and trying to crush them sort of instinctively and then being like, why the fuck am I crying? I've never cried before ever. I think that's like a good emotional science fiction moment. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's pretty good. Ray choosing to sacrifice herself at the end of her le- the second Ray choosing to blow herself up rather than, than let Armisael take over unit two com- unit zero completely is is I think maybe a bit rote like I it's sort of like oh of course you blow yourself up you've tried to kill yourself three other fucking times in this fucking show with the with the n2 mine with the i'm gonna be the shield in front of ramiel's blaster blade like Mm -hmm. unit unit zero is always getting the shaft and ray's always the expendable one so like it's it's sort of like a little too little too late character wise for her in that respect although i like that you get her saving oscar first in my head as i was watching this i'm like this is a more interesting show if she gets the spear of longinus and saves oscar without permission that would that would make a certain degree of sense because the thing that makes ray two as like now we have to kind of get to the point where we have to talk about the three rays as separate characters because they actually are separate characters ray two the ray that we've known for the majority of the show her character arc is essentially her learning to be a human being over the course of the show and initially her death wish is as a lack of care about herself and about a lack of care about other people but as the show goes on her efforts her suicide efforts her attempts to sacrifice herself in the name of the cause gradually become about doing it for other people Right, And I would agree that having some of her acting to save Asuka of her own volition would help lead us to that conclusion here when she sacrifices herself to save Shinji. But I think the point still stands. I almost always forget that she doesn't die with the N2 mine. I always, every time I watch the show, I'm like, oh, this is when Rey dies. And I'm always surprised that that isn't when it happens. Now, like now that you know that Ray dot di- like Ray dies, it's like it's where the show is going. Right. And what a fucking weird way to go. Uh, you could probably tell that we were like struggling to keep it together <laughs> in the plot summary of this episode because, whoa, boy, a lot going on here, buddy. Um, this is easily the most fucked up and like erotic angel fight of any of them it is so fucking weird like the choice to have like when the angel is infecting ray that like all of her veins pop out it's like the i put this in my notes it's like big deviant art energy like this is oh yeah (laughs) this is some out there shit and i think it's this episode the the fact that even ray's death is eroticized to this level kind of explains a lot about the fandom around ray (laughs) Yeah, it's it, it's absolutely like more problematic fandom of Ray things like, ooh, I like when you get the the little tubercular things growing on you. Strange. All the little tiny Ray faces growing out of her hands. It's like body horror sexuality and it's 
the fact that it all comes like screaming out at this like last moment of the show is a lot. Like one of the things I like to imagine when watching this episode is what all the adults are feeling in Nerve HQ. Like, uh, what the fuck? Like the thing of like the giant Ray, like coming out of the angel to embrace Shinji is just like, whoo, everyone is being let in on way too much. <laughs> There's a there's a I'm reminded of some web comic that's like uh, it's three figures and one of them's just covering its mouth going oh my god the other one's vomiting and the third has a visible hard wa- hard on and says that's my fetish <laughs> one of those is one of the bridge crew and I think it's mine yeah. <laughs> who by the way is fucking absent like you don't see her like suddenly Hugo's the only bridge pr- I don't know why. I I don't know why that happens. I also don't know why uh, this angel fight was brought to you by David Cronenberg. <laughs> it's I mean I love that the show keeps finding new ways to freak you out until the very end. Like the the final stretch of angels are so cool and creative, even if they're deliberately repeating tropes from the earlier ones. Like it's just such an interesting like you you get to see the angels be like this iterative invasive process where they're like taking the best parts of previous angels and figuring out new ways to like bring those into the attack. Uh, Right. Ultimately though, I agree that the thing that makes this episode really sing is the fact that the Ray storyline and the Ritzko storyline are paralleled with each other. Right. Because Suddenly, all of the stuff about Ritzko being really concerned about aging and becoming her mother is not just her own separate storyline, but it's actually connected to the idea of an iterative person. The idea that what if you're not yourself? What if you're just a copy of the person before you? And so suddenly Ritzko finds herself confronting the fact that she has become her mother in the very way that all of these rays have to confront the fact that they're not themselves. They're just a copy of someone else. That is fucking beautiful writing. Yeah, it's it's really, really good. And the only like the only issue, but this is also like, I think, well observed, as I said before, the only issue is that like this episode more than almost any episode since the flashbacks just points a giant finger at Gendo's impropriety mm-hmm. and he's not made to confront it. He's not made to suffer for it. He keeps sitting in his fucking office with impunity, even, even as like his bosses are conspiring to fire him too little too late. I do want to talk about how Masato factors into this, but there's just one little thing I want to talk about with Ritzko, which is that in the flashback episode, we learn that Ritzko has never had any luck with romance, that she's always been sort of, you know, two left hands about it. Like she just doesn't know how to interact with other people and how to interact with other people romantically. And the fact that Gendo has put her in this position of being in this affair with him just as like wow what a fucking scumbag like he in the same way that like Kaoru is like taking advantage of Shinji Gendo is taking advantage of Ritsuko and her lack of romantic her incel dumb basically you know like here comes Gendo able to provide her with a powerful position and nerve and also is using her sexually during this period of time it's like really fucked up like Gendo is a, a real bastard <laughs> I, this is I've never seen an, an ostensibly like children's show, not really for children, but like a show aimed at young adults. Let's say it aimed at young adults. I've I've never seen like a piece of narrative fiction aimed at young adults in like the fantasy or science fiction genre that's 
so overt about a serial sexual manipulator Mm -hmm. in the in the in this way and i just want to jump in there give me that evangelion time machine of things that i could fix to make this go right i want to go back to college age ritzko be like ritzko baby you're smart you're good looking no one fucking likes your mom you can go get it you can get it all you like (laughs) it's yeah it's another tragedy of the so many of these characters can't see how close they are to happiness until it's too late you know totally ritzko doesn't have any problem standing naked in front of this zele fucking monoliths until one of them points out it's like you know we asked for ray Mm -hmm. and then it's an issue like that's that's the domino that flips her over she's like i don't mind these creepy fucking cultist men looking at my fucking butt crack but that they asked for Ray and got me as a second place. I'm going to I'm going to call my best friend. I'm going to call Shinji. I'm going to go down into the fucking torture dungeon and I'm going to blow it up. <laughs> and then I'm going to cry. Yeah. And you know what? I don't blame you. And what can Misato do? Like she like one has her gun drawn on her ostensible best friend Two, when her best friend breaks down crying offers her nothing and like these two episodes in a row both end with Masato just not caring just not being able to extend anything to other people at all there's definitely this sense that everyone is running on zero in terms of like yeah the, the show especially at the beginning of these episodes just feels depressed like no one has any energy left for for each other no one can extend an arm to each other at all Everyone's just kind of on their own tracks and there's just nothing left in the tank. In a way, that's like the part that like affected me most right now because it feels a lot like reality as we're recording this in the middle of like COVID April. The the supreme, I'm thinking of images like this, how no one's paying attention to what anyone else feels. Obviously, Hugo's crushing on Misato. She doesn't give a fucking shit. She's shutting Shinji out of her life and can't figure out why he would then shut her out of her life in in retribution and no one cares about asuka it's so sad it is so sad the only person that cares is hikari god bless perfect you know too good for this world hikari <laughs> who's just so innocent of all of the shit that's going on in this show and it's just like well i thought you did a great job asuka like oh no <laughs> i can let you can play street fighter in my bedroom all night it's okay that we don't go to school uh <laughs> too bad i'm gonna die in a nuclear explosion in like 12 hours and then then when when asuka's trying to kill herself and the nerve agent you only hear it but you can he he like they they don't knock on the door they like hack it down with a fire axe and instead of like going to save her you just see its shadow fall on the floor and he's like hey are you asuka yeah okay you're coming with me i guess whatever right the only person that she interacts with the only other person that she interacts with in in these two episodes is a faceless man who doesn't even care about who she actually is they sort of elide by the Asuka killing herself thing so much so that like you could kind of miss it she could just be sitting there naked in the tub if you're not like paying attention but like 
Jesus, Jesus, she's fallen hard and fast. The show doesn't even seem to be able to summon up the energy to address it anymore. Like, she's just spent. She's, like, completely wrung out. And it just adds to this this sense of the world winding down. Like, no one has anything left to offer anymore in the show unless they're there to suffer more. That said, at least, I think in the future... Oscar does kind of get hers. We sh- yes, we should. We I'll, shouldn't. I'll leave it at that. We shouldn't write out the rest of the show, and it's uh, the rest of the story, just yet. Right. But right. up to this point, that's basically where we're at. Speaking of story, there's a lot of plot stuff that gets kind of dropped on us at the last minute. Here, <laughs> I don't know if you could exactly call it plot, but it's it's certainly information. Yes information that's the best way to put it lore it is a lore data dump that we get in these episodes not only do we learn all of this information about ray's origins and about the nature of the dummy plugs and the nature of ava's to begin with the fact that they're basically the same as ray what the fuck we also get this second data dump from zele about the origins of the angels versus the origins of humanity and these two different moons that are embedded in the world the the geo front is essentially the origin of humanity and like what <laughs> it's a lot all at once let's let me let's start let's start parsing sure it. okay so it let's start with the chamber of guff the chamber of guff like you you can believe is the name for like the lcl tube that makes that like cloned ray's brain and activates all the dummies that's like one interpretation of the Chamber of Guff, but that's not really what it means. Ritzko says the Chamber of Guff was empty. There were no more souls. Weird for a woman of science to say that. But here's the Chamber of Guff is. In in Jewish mysticism, although this echoes into Christian mysticism, the Chamber of Guff refers to the place where all human souls reside and like critically there's a finite number of souls and it's actually somewhat limited and 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 also according to the lore the messiah hallelujah will not be born until the last soul has exited the chamber of guff which adds a whole which they no one talks about but adds a whole dimension to the plot Mm-hmm. because the idea is that like only after Ray, Ray's got the last soul, Ray was created. Only after Ray was created, could the savior of mankind maybe be born. This is where the quiverful movement gets some of their shit, by the way. Yes. Uh, you know, the, the weird, I guess if, if you escape from that cult, good for you. Uh, but maybe uh, you're, parents like the evangelion um well but it's also similar like the mormons have a similar belief system as well like oh, this is this is not as yeah. like out there or it well it is out there but it's not as fringe of a belief as you would uh come to presume if you came from a secular background like people believe this shit there is a reading of the series that we've alluded to before that is shinji maybe jesus and there's certainly stuff that comes to support that. Like, I think Kaoru even saying, maybe I was born to meet you, is perhaps more literal than Kaoru uh, intends it to be. Right. 
and and right before we find out like right before we found out about the chamber of guff ritsuko takes shinji and misato like through this like revolving door of horrors and it feels a little bit like satan tempting jesus and taking him onto the mountain be like look at all the land everywhere the light touches i will give you domain over all of that oh you don't want that look at the chamber of riches i can offer you all the power in the world if you will uh just kneel to me once blah 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 it like to me ritzko being like and this is the grave of of the giants that came before and this is where your mother died if you do not remember it acknowledge acknowledge this mm-hmm. and shinji kind of kind of doesn't it also feels kind of like uh, uh dante's inferno <laughs> dante's inferno but also job i believe it's job that this is where the you get behemoth and leviathan mm-hmm. from yep. but like job asks why god is like cursing him and god like takes job on like a little journey across the world and he's like look at this giant fucking earth monster thing it's the behemoth one day it's gonna eat fucking everything um you don't question why this exists why are you questioning me and because of that you get the sense that maybe misato's kind of a prophet and shinji might be some sort of christ-like figure however if christ has already come then does that make shinji the anti-christ uh it would be a good time to talk about the lyrics to uh cruel angels thesis which i think at this point have taken on a completely different meaning than they did in the early going of the show so in the in right. the early going of the show, it's easy to see the opening song about a boy rising to meet his destiny, you know, classic shonen shit, you know, but by now we are maybe coming to understand that that destiny, the fact that unit one is so integral into beginning instrumentality. Do we want instrumentality to happen? What What is Shinji's destiny actually? And so all of these images these portentous images that the opening theme has been describing every single time you've loaded up the show is he yeah is he the christ or is the is he the antichrist the choice is in his hands which is why it's so fucking powerful that this episode ends with him making a choice and it's one of the only choices that he's been able to make of his own volition in the entire show we've like these these moments happen so rarely in Shinji's life that they all matter a great deal. And the fact that he chooses to kill someone that he believed loved him does not bode well. <laughs> right. So let's let's do some of the other some of the other things that Second Angel is Lilith. Many people, especially people who like knew like Sinead O'Connor and Lilith Fair, may be familiar with Lilith or who've Ever listened to a sketchy black metal record? I know Ian and I have. So what's what's Lilith? Um, Lilith doesn't exist in the Bible of the Catholic Church, but I believe does exist in the Torah. I could be mistaken. But Lilith exists in some religious texts. Lilith is the, depending on how you count, first or second wife of Adam, with Eve being the second or third right after Lilith depending on how you count and the story of Lilith is Adam's alone in the Garden of Eden God makes Lilith to be his companion because Adam is lonely aha here we are in this series I am lonely I want someone to be my companion who loves and cares for me here we go and God makes Lilith God doesn't make Lilith out of Adam's rib God makes Lilith independently from Adam and Adam wants Lilith to be subservient to him because he's a man. 
and Lilith rejects him, and God casts Lilith out of the Garden of Eden. And depending on your reading, Lilith then becomes Satan's wife or consort. So there's that's where Lilith comes from. If you if you come from the weird like Venn diagram overlap between like uh, mystical feminism and like left hand path occult magic, that's like all about the myth of Lilith is where all of that comes from. And so the show is basically establishing these images as two lineages for all life forms on Earth, where we have the life forms descending from Adam and the life forms descending from Lilith. And the angels are the life forms that descend from Adam and human beings are the life forms descending from Lilith. That's the easiest way to describe it. The show is, does not make this particularly clear. <laughs> there was, I thought, and, and this may occur later, but at some point in time there's going to be a line of dialogue where I, I believe it's Misato says, you could interpret humanity as the 18th angel. In, in, in total. Right. Uh, which does relate to another thing that was cut out of the Bible. Uh, and this one we do know. There's the. Are you familiar with the Book of Enoch, Ian? Not really. Feel free to fill me in. It's more, here's where every satanic black metal band gets all their word salad from. The Book of Enoch is more or less the book that explains why God sends the flood to Noah, the great flood, the great deluge. And the story is that as humans are propagating, God sends 200 angels. Oh, look, uh, a number of angels who all have a number uh, mm -hmm. to watch over mankind. And the angels get horny and decide to start mating with mankind. And you get a bunch of hybrid people called the Nephilim. Not the Lilium, which is weird, but the Nephthalim. And the Nephthalim are not good stewards of the planet and start fucking the landscape up. And they have great sway over mankind. By the way, and the, so do these like renegade angels too. By the way, this is where you get like uh, Azazel, like the angel of weaponry. Like Azazel is like the bad guy in the Book of Enoch basically mm -hmm. so it's like it's weird that azazel isn't one of the angels we get in evangelion he also teaches people to use makeup i don't know why that's in there but ah right. see that there you go because the show is trying to be uh more subtle and the idea of an angel teaching people how to use makeup was too gay for the show i mean too uh, overt for the show's meaning uh, <laughs> not worthy of the show's grace um and so god sends the flood noah's flood to wipe out the hybrid spawn of men and angels. Interestingly, Evangelion all takes place after a giant flood. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that's, so we're conflating multiple strands of Christian and Jewish mysticism. Uh, but there, but there you go. So we are still somewhat unclear about what the true nature of human instrumentality is, but it is clear that if an angel were to meet not Adam, as we'd previously been, previously been led to believe, but rather Lilith, some of this other being, this other formative entity for the entire race of humanity, that would cause something else, the third impact right. to happen. 
And we know that Gendo has the physical form of Adam in his own body. And that this also in some way is important to the beginning of the human instrumentality project. And we know he cares a great deal about Ray. And this is about at this point, all that we can know for sure about the actual plot plot, the plot behind the plot of Evangelion. Now, other than they're mass producing all these other Evangelions and somehow still have all this money to burn. They're like, I just make the last four fast. (laughs) I think it'd be funny if like, it'd be funny if the last four show up and they kind of suck. Like they're like jalopy Evangelions. (laughs) One's half painted or it's got like, um, you know, a duct tape paper bag over one eye. They didn't have the glass. (laughs) Yes, there is the question of the mass-produced Avas that keep getting hinted at. Where are they at, though? There's a lot that's, that is left to be explained. And we only have two episodes of Evangelion, which means we only have one final episode of recap and analysis for Neon Genesis Evangelion, the TV show, left. We're going to get all the things we've been waiting for, aren't it's we? It's all coming together, baby. Aren't we? <laughs> All right. Are you ready for it? Because I'm ready for it. I'm ready for whatever this, this, this finale has for, for me and for you and for every other joyous member of mankind. Maybe all link arms together and sing an ode to maybe just a tiny bit of fan service. See you later, Joseph. God damn it. Thank you for listening. If you liked the episode, please rate, review, and subscribe. If you want to share your thoughts on the show or about anything really, email us at humaninstrumentalitypodcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at another AvaPod and on Instagram at humaninstrumentalitypod. Extra special thanks to Kira Anderson for the graphics and web design. See you next week. <laughs> <laughs>